Welcome to another episode of The Imperfect Scientist. The podcast to uncover your strengths and to empower you. And I'm very happy that today we have Andrew Westhoff here. Um, and he's going to um, tell, say who he is. And he's also going to introduce the topic that is going to be really interesting. Hello, it's an absolute pleasure to be invited. Uh, as Daniel said, my name is Andrew Westhoff. I work, well, occasionally I work at the research in, um, the labs of the Kinderklinik in Ulm. I've got my own research group there. And I'd like to talk today about the link between biomedical science, storytelling, and crime novels, because that obviously makes sense and won't confuse anyone. <laughs> no, it won't, especially because we have, um, I think in, in some of our courses, we very clearly state that, um, you know, like it, scientific stories are not detective stories in that sense, but you are going to prove um, that that is actually the case. And that's good because um, we're going we're gonna to put a different spin and we're going to learn something new. So looking forward to our conversation, Andrew. Oh. I think... Um, you, um, at least for me, not, not having known you before today, it would be also be useful for our audience to know how you two got to know each other and what you have to do with each other. So what's your background, basically? Daniel and you, that's what I'm asking. Oh, you mean you want the, the dirt between Daniel and me? The, the Absolutely. <laughs> and, uh, the, the hard competition we fought out. Um, oh, that's right. We, we applied for the same job. We applied oh, for the same job. I wasn't even aware of that. I just, when you said competition, I just thought about the fantastic PhD student that I was able to recruit. Um, that I, and that actually, I've been talking about in this podcast again and again. Um, Viola was actually a master student. She was trained by Andrew and she came to me and she was one of the best students I ever had. Mm-hmm. That's actually basically how we, at least how we met online is um, because Viola sort of switched between Daniel and me and um, we actually published something together. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, and then we again went to a lovely meeting with excellent food and drink. And I should have mentioned the scientific content first. Obviously, that's why you go to meetings. And um, it was a very small um, meeting at Lake Como. And um, so we got chatting and chatted a lot about science and chatted a lot about other things. And um, now we regularly meet online and evaluate students. Yeah, we meet in a only, and grown up way. Only at, at students' exams. That's when we meet. Uh, I met the last year. Yeah. Um, and we competed for the same position. I wasn't aware of that. I think so. You, you applied. We both didn't get it. So we allowed up to them. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, didn't, didn't you apply for the um, um, Mol Onk? Yeah, yeah, professorship. Yeah, we're not going to talk about the person who got it, right? Because that's going to be... Uh, yeah. 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 Different topic. <laughs> we didn't choose the best one. <laughs> oh, good. Good. No, but um, so I think the, the topic you suggest is really excellent because it, there's a lot on top of it, um, like the f uh, that goes towards abstract thinking, which is very much connected to to science and which makes us different to 
to to the other animals on the on the planet. So, what's your take on on the topic with criminal detective stories and the similarity to um, you know biomedicine? If, 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 if we go back one, uh, I, I think I shall I shall now start boring you. So you just interrupt me. Um, this all started because I had to do Latin in school, and I absolutely hated it. Um, because first of all, I am lazy, and secondly, um, I, I have a mixed background. So um, when the other people did English in school, I didn't have to learn anything because I kind of knew the language from my mother, who's Scottish. Well, except the grammar, obviously, because Scots ignore grammar. Um, and so when, when, when everyone was used to doing the vocabulary tests and stuff like that, I ended up doing this the first time ever in Latin, and I got completely swamped by it and was incapable of doing it. And up to this day, I can easily start a conversation in Latin with going Marcus in Colosseum est ubi est Cornelia. And this is the, the complete summary of, of, of doing Latin for four and a half years. Um, and then obviously when, when you ended up in university, you, you had this Linnaeus stuff where he did all the categories and animals and, and always gave them Latin names. And you go, why, why? It, well, back then it was a dead language. Don't do this to me. And um, obviously the, the only reason they did it is because there's a bloke in botan botany who figured out that orchids looked like private parts of humans. So he had a huge list of Latin words for penis and vagina going through them, which is why orchids have all the cool names. And humans are incredibly boring. I mean, Homo erectus is probably funny for a 12 year old boy, but that's it. Homo neanderthalensis is wow. How long did you spend on that name? And when you get to Homo sapiens, that's an incredibly stupid name. If you go back, even, even Linnaeus, good Christian as he was, figured out that humans really shouldn't be an independent species. Like, basically, they are apes. They should be called pan something rather. Um, and so Homo never made much sense. And sapiens being wise is not really how I would describe us. And the better phrase for us as, as modern humans would be Pan Narans, the storytelling ape, because that's the one big difference between us and every other species on the planet is that we tell stories. It's, it's, it's an intrinsic feature. We, we are capable of abstract thought, which allows us to plan ahead, which most animals never do. I mean, you have the, the squirrel hiding its nuts, and we always assume it hides nuts because it knows winter is coming. Oh, good, good Game of Thrones reference in there, um, which is not true. Squirrels just hide any nut when they're not hungry. So there's no planning ahead. It's just not, not hungry now, later. And that's it. And, and, and we can do this. We extrapolate information. We, we think about things. We, we think about the future. And we try to explain our environment by telling stories about this. And because we can do this, we are so very different from any other animal. And because we can do this, we can also do science. Because my take on science, particularly biomedical science, is that it's not about finding out the truth. That's philosophy. That's you know, the department opposite us, um, occasionally, very small. Very funny smell there. 
never gets up before five o'clock in the evening. Um, science is about making models, trying to explain the world. And if you make a model, that's basically you tell a story which doesn't contradict your observation. It's nothing else. So the better you get at telling stories and checking whether your story fits to reality, the better you get at science, at least the initial hypothesis. I mean, obviously, occasionally we, we, we do need proof, but the hypothesis building, the trying to explain the world, that's intrinsic to humans and that's intrinsic to science. I mean, starting out with, oh, there's a thunderstorm coming up. I assume it's Thor riding on his chart with goats pulling him, wielding a funny hammer I can never pronounce, going from, oh, funny enough, I've never seen lightning without thunder. I wonder whether they're connected. Starting on from going, ah, it was really warm, and then cold air came, starting and progressing. So we are telling stories with an initial assumption, checking that assumption to reality, and, and then progressing. And that's basically science, and it's basically storytelling. And what I would like to add onto this, we tell the story to uh, to have a hypothesis explaining what's happening, but we also tell the story to convey that information to others, right? And that's where this cooperation comes into place where we tell stories to captivate also others because the story is compelling and easy to understand and easy to follow. And that's how we can actually work together and collaborate and develop science together with somebody in India and somebody in Southern America and somebody all working together on this body of knowledge of mankind. Exactly, I mean, that, that, that goes goes again to science developing its own type of language where although people from a different background and speaking obviously a different language kind of build up the same story by using the same tools which is basically language and that again cooperation is essential for storytelling i mean very rarely you sit alone in the dark going hello andrew i can't sleep i will tell myself a good night story and it not, that's not how storytelling works. It's, it's always, you have an audience and ideally in science, you have a participant who sort of picks your story up and continues your story. Absolutely, cool. And um, we're gonna dig deeper into the similarities between criminal stories and, and scientific stories or biomedicine. Um, and we're also going to um, pick examples, right, where, where you um, also use that, um, these similarities in your, in your biomedical life, I guess. Um, and I've, I've come to know you as a very entertaining, very well-connected with the students type of person. Yeah. You mean a blowhard who can't stop talking? Yeah, that would be me. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um... It, it, I, I, I don't know how you were taught back in the olden days, obviously when the world was black and white, we were young. Um, I was told that basically you have two types of proof in, in science, going back to Aristotle, but you have induction and deduction. And obviously you start with a huge Sherlock Holmes family. You start with Sherlock Holmes always taking out his pipe going, yes, I deduced that by the pastely sinking into the butter, I knew how something rather, something rather. 
And um, that's basically not really how Sherlock Holmes worked and that's not how science worked. And that, that was basically the connection I made. Um, and I just made it to annoy people. I, I'm, I'm very contrarian. I, I like to annoy people. It's, it's, it's easy to get the attention of people when you annoy them. Um, because basically what happens in Sherlock Holmes stories and what happens in at least biomedical science is we use a process called for the initial hypothesis building. We used, uh, use a process called um, abduction. So it's not deduction, it's not induction, it's abduction, which is basically taking the facts which we know and building a hypothesis or a story to explain those facts. That's the difference from deduction where you have to work from facts to, to, to deduce other facts. And the rules with deduction is it has to be true. And that's, of course, not what we do in science. I mean, look at your own papers probably from 10 years ago. If you now could rewrite them, you would go, oh, I would put the emphasis on this and this is not what happens. And I did four more experiments and I published four more papers and I figured out, crap, it should have been this way. Um, so we always, and, and this is abduction. You use, for your initial hypothesis, you use the most likely model that might explain the facts. And this is obviously what you do in, in, in crime stories as well. There's, it's again, not about absolute truth, where we have to get away from, from it in, in, in science at least, that we try to find out the truth. I mean, we always improve our models and our yeah. models are good as long as they don't contradict new information. And oh, if you go to other fields of science, even if they contradict information, you might still use those models. I mean, Newtonian planetary movement has been shown to be wrong, but for 90% of all your questions, it still works. Yeah. Oh, I love that. I'm always talking about, you know, that we that you try for, especially in the good scientific practice workshops, I always talk about, you know, we need to show something that's as close to the truth as possible, but I need to rephrase that. That I, I would probably now start saying that, it's as close to the current model as, as possible, right? Being aware that we're on a transition, on a process, and yeah. we're never going to reach anywhere. Oh, that I love that. There's, um, a, there's a quote that I don't remember from whom, but um, which says something along the lines of there's no right or wrong models, just useful ones and non-useful ones. Uh -huh. So um, that would make a lot of sense. And I'd like to pick up on a couple of ideas that you threw out there, Andrew, that I think could be interesting to 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 delve into a little bit deeper because in this podcast we're all about tools and we're all about trying to empower people with um kind of simple things they can apply to improve their scientific life in this case for example in terms of storytelling or in terms of approaching in general the um, scientific method and and there's two things that that I think would be worth discussing further. One is the idea that science is not really so much about finding out the truth, but more about building useful models. I think for one that can take a lot of pressure off many people when you're thinking, well, no, I actually need to find out the truth. How is this, you know, exactly happening? And I need to understand every detail. And when you maybe take that distance and realize that what you're trying to do is build a model that will be as faithful as possible to, to the truth, but which might still be wrong, but useful, um, that might take off some pressure. So I think that's an interesting, that's an interesting 
tool we could um, we could go a bit deeper into. And the other one is um, the process, the process you just described, which is similar to the criminal storytelling, right? Or to the unraveling of, of criminal uh, facts, which is this idea that you start with facts and make up a story first. Um, and, and then that's basically your hypothesis. And on the basis of that, you can then use any other method like scientific method for testing your hypothesis. So. I guess to translate this to a very concrete question, how do you approach this yourself in your in your group? Um, how do you go about this, um, and and what recommendations would you have? Well, that's certainly not an easy question. Thank you for that one. Um, <laughs> I, I think part of it. Um, and, and and something where we fail miserably in teaching is that we pretend there is a difference between what a scientist does and being creative. Mm -hmm. And we are really, really, really bad. I think there were enough reallys in there. I'll just add another one, really bad. Um, in, I, I, I'm not sure, obviously, I think you two would probably know more about this than me. Um, I have a long debate with, with a friend who's in a creative arty type business, um, whether you can actually teach creativity. Mm -hmm. I, I think you can encourage creativity, you can enhance creativity. If you have sort of the model that creativity is motivation, uh, original thought and knowledge, we can make sure the students and obviously my group, my team as well, get most out of the knowledge. We can encourage motivation. I always think marks is not a good one. That's extrinsic motivation. We all know intrinsic motivation is better. But this original thought, we fail really badly in teaching students or encouraging students to use that. And this is something I, I always try to to get people to do. And I obviously they're, they're kind of different tools and um, I'm happy to hear your thoughts actually on, on which tools you would suggest. There's one type of, ah, sorry, my background. Um, there's one type of, of lecture I like to give is where I use the first five minutes to really confuse people. That means if you have students or indeed during a talk, the audience sitting there, they, they, they come in with an expectation. You know, if, if you go, oh, it, it's oh, west of, he waffles on a lot and he talks a lot, but basically I know he works on glioblastoma uh, and you sit down and go, good, I, I'm going to hear something about cancer. And um, as one of the lectures, the one I like basically, starts out with the Battle of Bannockburn, which is, the, the decisive battle in the first uh, war of independence, Scotland versus England, basically the last time the Scots won anything, uh, from 1314. And, and you can see half the audience going, am I allowed to say what the fuck? Probably not. You, you, you're allowed to see half the audience going, what the hell? And the other half going, eh? And then you, you obviously move from... from 
you explain why you use the Battle of Bannockburn, and, and you can see people picking up, and it's not a metaphor, it's, it's a, a different way of approaching things. And if you give an introduction which forces people to step out of their preconceived ideas and their expectations, I think you open up, you open up your minds as a terrible cliche. You, you, you make them more acceptance of seeing problems in a different way. I think that's one of the big tools which actually helps. Does that answer vaguely your question? Vaguely. Yes, <laughs> no, I, I totally agree. It's about opening uh, curiosity where I always say, you know, we usually do incremental research, right? We move ahead millimeter by millimeter by just sticking to what is known. Whereas the big jumps ahead come when people do either something totally differently because they don't know, right? Mm -hmm. Where they are free of all of this bulk of knowledge that's, that's uh, you know, restricting you to certain millimeter approach type of thing. Or if people don't know and they make mistakes, right? I mean, the classic being Fleming forgetting his stuff, his experiment on the windowsill and then discovering something. Um, I think... So I think those large jumps ahead, they come from when things are done either wrongly or totally differently because somebody doesn't know. And we, I love this concept where you say, you know, there's no truth. And the example that I give is when, you know, you have this uh, conference and somebody, uh, the young postdoc is giving a talk or the young student is giving a talk. And then there's the two professors sitting in the front in the first row. And the one is the supervisor of the student and the other one is the, is the competitor. And the competitor says, but that's wrong. Literature shows that it's like this. And the other professor says, no, no, you have, you don't know the literature. Literature says actually it's the other way. Whereas professor one has read papers one to 10 and professor B has read papers five to 15. So the overlap is just five papers, right? Mm -hmm. So they actually cannot, well, from their own perspective, they can say, well, literature says, but actually we can never connect all the literature in a single human brain, right? That's just not possible. So it's always um, this, you know, perspective, curiosity, being open to challenge things, being open to do things differently. And I think I, I totally agree with you that that's, uh, there's tools around. And I mean, I've been asked once to give a course on creativity. So I had to, you know, read into this because I thought like creativity is this voodoo thing that falls from the sky. You either have it or you don't. And that's wrong. There's tools on how to do creativity. I think the major point, though, is the, um, you know, to the, the acceptance of doing something differently, which means accepting failure, accepting uh, risk. And uh, you know, letting go of of old concepts, which really take us huge steps forward. Sometimes, um, rarely, but they do. I, I think we also have to get away from the idea that if something doesn't work, it's yeah. a failure. Yeah, uh, yeah. Totally. Obviously, in in terms of funding and grant proposals, that's <laughs> completely true, unfortunately. Um, but but of course, and I mean, this this is also not a new debate. I mean the. the as a half joke years ago, um, they founded the Journal of uh, Unreproducible Results and the Journal of Failures and stuff like that. So um, by, by something not working the way you expect it and not understanding the result. And, and obviously we have this a lot with, with students that go, oh God, I've spent, don't know, the, the nine months of my master's thesis on this and it's a huge failure. 
And it's not. It just doesn't show something where you go, wow. And it doesn't show what you expected. But it's, of course, if everything went, obviously there is a failure. If you contaminate your cells with bacteria, that's not really a success story. Although there's a science paper, which one of the first anti-apoptotic proteins turned out to be microplasma after years. Um, so even that is interesting. Uh, and it, it, it's a bit like the, the cliche that there are no bad books. From every book you read, you can learn something. If you read a fantasy novel, you at least learn how to use your imagination. And I think that that's true with projects which didn't work the way you expected and projects that didn't produce an exciting result. And often it's, of course, the, the, the understanding why the result is not exciting, which gives you a new lead in, in things. Um, that, that's the one thing. And, and the other thing I completely agree, it's doing something differently and probably because you don't know how to do things that gives you a different approach or you have this ginormous intuitive leads uh, and leaps which then produce the Nobel Prize and also produce the Nobel Prize disease. Once you won your Nobel Prize, you think every stupid idea you have is brilliant. And this is why we now have, you know, I have two Nobel Prizes. I know that taking high doses of vitamin C will prevent every cancer. Oh, what did you die of? Uh, cancer. Or yes, I have a Nobel Prize and therefore I, I, I can prove that DNA can transport from one Eppendorf tube to the next. So we have to be careful that using your creativity also doesn't necessarily mean you're a genius. And having clever ideas also means probably for each clever idea you have, you have a couple of hundreds of ideas which are complete rubbish. Yeah, and there's also the connection with the detective stories where you um, get the surprises, at least in the good detective stories, right? You get the, where at least the reader is surprised, if not the inspector or uh, Sherlock Holmes or Agatha Christie. Uh, no, Agatha Christie was the author, right? I'm really, I really suck at this. Um, so, um, sorry for that. So, but there's the surprise effect, right? Where you, in the good um, criminal story, you're actually, that's the, that's what makes it nice, right? Whereas in science, sometimes we're reluctant to go for the surprise, no? At least me as an, a, you know, conservative, uh, lazy person, I, I have problems with surprises in science. It's also the problems, of course, getting your surprising results published. Yeah, <laughs> true. No, and th this is where you have then the, the, the great professor going, no, this is wrong. Yeah, no, it's that's not, wrong. Yeah, it's you know. Surprising. Um, yes, I mean, the, the, the good thing about a, um, a good crime novel is that it's actually not a surprise. All the information is, is yeah. there. And this is, of course, also what is, is completely gratifying in science. Once you sort of, you worked out your model and you've got the connections and then you go back to PubMed or even the library because... Some of the literature is so old that it's not been digitized yet. And you go, oh, yes, there are actually hints that my story works throughout the literature. And then you can quote going, oh, yes, as already Shearer showed in 
1938, there are structures in the brain which are anti-apoptotic for cancer cells moving through them. You go, yes, strike. <laughs> um, so so what, what, once you have, have all your creative, well, not input, export, basically, and then you go back and in the case of a crime novel, you start rereading it and you read it in a different light. You go back to the literature and suddenly find, yes, that story is actually in a long tradition. And there are hints that my story is true. Oh, that's cool. That's excellent. So I think what I'm taking from this is that um, the similarity is more in the process. You know, the similarity to the, to the crime story is more in the process of generating um, the hypothesis and investigating it in the, in the sense that you don't maybe see all the facts at once, but just kind of get pieces of information here and there. And then, and then you get the next one and it's a surprise. And then you go back and put it all together. Um, and then when you reread it, um, everything, having everything in mind, it, it becomes obvious that all those twists um, were just information that was you weren't seeing or you weren't aware of or, or whatever. Um, so it doesn't actually clash with the idea that maybe the telling itself doesn't have to be um, like a detective story. So like when, when you're actually then trying to communicate it, which I think is a good thing. But I do, I, I agree. I think there is a lot of similarities between the process of reading a detective novel and the actual doing of the research, right? The actual path. Um, and there is also some truth, I guess, in or some similarity. Truth there is for sure. I would agree 100% that very often you might have results that, that you don't see as being exciting in the moment, um, the same way that you might not pick up on hints in a certain detective story, which you think are unimportant, but they might become important um, when you actually put the whole story together, right? And so always having that distance and realizing that every piece of information you get, every piece of information you model can eventually be put to some use, um, even if it is to discard an, an idea, is, um, is, is, also, is also good in that sense, right? That it's not just unencouraging. That, that's, yes, basically that's true, except I would go two steps further. In addition, I think there are similarities in writing a, and this is going to make me very unpopular, there are similarities in writing a good paper and writing a good detective story. And I, I, I like to advise uh, students when they write their thesis that they start out with reading three or four Agatha Christie novels. <laughs> um, it makes sense because if you think about, we're talking now about a classic golden age detective story. You have basically the introduction where every key player is introduced. And while there is some slight waving of hands to make it not too obvious, very rarely there's superfluous information given in the first bit. And this is basically how you write a good introduction to a paper. You introduce everything which is important, you end with the question, as in the introduction of a good detective novel, you end with a murder. Um, you don't waffle on about stuff which is unimportant. And if, if, if you review paper, the one thing which drives me 
nuts is if, if people write a digression. So they go, yes, and this cancer is particularly prone to this and this treatment, which works this and this way, and does this and this. Therefore, we looked at long, non-coding DNA. You go, what? No, what? And it's RNA, by the way. Um, and then you have, in, in, so your introduction has to be streamlined and focused on the important things, which is how you do a, a good detective novel. And then you have, in the next section of a detective novel, you have the investigation, where you progress along a red line, where you go, oh, yes, I will talk to this and this. I have this new piece of information. I'll go to that and that. And again, they only write the important bits. And this is how you write a good results section. A good results section is, I understand why you did this experiment. You point out what the result is what the important bit of the result is. I, I hate it when somebody writes, yes, and the treatment leads to 13.5% of cell deaths as opposed to the control, which is 18.9. Numbers are not important. It's, do I get an increase? Do I get a decrease? Do I get a certain amount of increase? Do I get a good increase? And then, okay, I understand this, so I go to the next thing. And then in the discussion of your paper, you explain your results in that context that you, and this, this sounds incredibly unfair, and I'm not suggesting you are cheating, but you explain the results in the context you want the reader to take home. It, it's, it's just not true. Papers are not written objectively. You're not explaining results what is the truth. I think we've we all firmly now established science is not about truth. It's how do the results explain my model? And this is, of course, the, the traditional, the detective invites everyone to the library and goes, yes, I will now explain why only you can be the murderer, why it's actually her. And that's is exactly, you, you show your reasoning and you convince the reader that your reasoning is sound and is the most likely explanation. And if you do this in a paper, this, along the same lines, your paper will be a good story. And and this is, again, the extremely unfair thing. People reading it and understanding and, and being led along the story will be more positively inclined towards your paper than you have this great results, which are really, really, really hard to get, but you can't really sell them. Yeah. So you can't communicate. I mean, we have this, and this is when I will bore Eva again, uh, there's this golden age of medicine um, where you have the, the, where you can show that communicating your science to make changes is probably even more important than having original thoughts. Sure. The Semmelweis in, in, in Vienna sort of realized that I have this splendid idea washing your hands before treating your pregnant patient and giving birth to her child is a really good idea. So septicemia actually goes down. And Semmelweis introduced this and, and was extremely unpopular and only gave, I think, two presentations and wrote in a very brief article in an obscure Hungarian journal. And then you have Lister, who um, later came to the same idea by using carbolic acid and, you know, I have a splendid idea. 
Uh, we just treat the patient with something really acidic and then they will not get gangrene. And uh, Lister published on this one idea, published seven papers in The Lancet. And so he, he is mainly considered having exported the idea of, you know, cleansiness um, because he also not only had the idea, but communicated it. And yeah. this is again how, how important good communication is in science and how you can get the, 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 the line of storytelling. That, and again, we're using the word wrong now, the, the, the deductive ideas from, from, from crime novels and transfer them to a good paper to get the structure of a story from there. And the Good. other thing is, and then I'll shut up and let you speak, uh, is that Agatha Christie has an incredibly limited vocabulary. Yeah. So, so people always complain about her in terms of literature, that she's actually not high-class literature because she gets away with using very few words and short sentences. And if you ever have a German student writing a thesis, you know that Germans intrinsically go for the longest possible word. I think that there must be a German thesaurus which goes longest word and you just tip in to be and then, then they come up, oh, instead of to be, I can use a word with 25 letters. I think I will use that one. Um, and we do this obviously to sound clever because I know a long word, I am clever, works. I, I have a subclause. And then you go back to Latin and go, ah, I have used the RCE. Um, but of course, effective communication is bringing your idea across clearly, tidily, straight. I mean, you, you're allowed to use a few funny words here and there, and you're allowed to have your jokes. But you don't want to sound clever. You want to have your idea understood by as many people as possible. And I, if you now take a science paper, which I've now so reduced to staccato telegraph type of writing because of the word limit, you go, this is not good communication. Obviously, I'm just envious because I don't have a science paper, but it, it's, there, there are other papers which are just a joy to read and they don't need to be necessarily long. I mean, if you go back to Watson and Quick, the original double helix paper, that's three pages. And it's just written in a, a beautiful language and it's a clear and tidy language and you can follow the reasoning and it's just a joy to read. And if I enjoy something which I read, I am more inclined to believe it or at least I'm more inclined to also respect the scientists who have written it, which is so important in science to make connections. Yeah. And then I totally love the, the I, uh, so I totally agree with you that the detective story with these uh, similarities between detective stories and, and a paper. And I, and I love this uh, Agatha Christie. I wasn't aware that she's using uh, a limited vocabulary. I think that's excellent. And I think that's an excellent example um, that I'm going to use. I'm going to steal that from you now. Um, and the only difference that uh, if I need make when we say that uh talking, telling a scientific story is not like a detective story, is that we would in, uh, encourage people, and actually we stole that from somebody else, Jean-Luc Dumont, um, to come up with the murderer in the beginning. 
right? Because then people can connect later. Once you say in the beginning, you know, it's this protein that's actually driving the cell cycle or doing glioblastoma or something, then afterwards it's easier for people to follow the story. Whereas, um, and, and that's the only difference that we would, that we would argue would be good uh, as a difference to a detective story um, to actually come up with things up front. And in the paper, we do that with the abstract, right? And we would also encourage to do that in a talk that in the beginning you say, you know, uh, the murderer is actually the gardener, which everybody expected anyway, right? So, um, and what I um, also like is this, um, what's your take on how Sherlock Holmes is doing experiments, right? Because I mean, we have the one thing is we deduct, we correlate in science, right? We say, you know, there's um, this and this correlation, that's my hypothesis. And then every reviewer would say, well, you have to test your hypothesis. And I just realized that, I mean, those, I'm not, I'm not as familiar, I guess, as you are, but the uh, really good sci uh, uh, inspectors and detectives, they also do experiments with their suspects, right? Yeah. So, so, so basically, yes. I mean, you have your hypothesis and now you have to prove it and you have to prove your, I, I mean, in the really bad stories, um, you know, TV shows which are on once a week, you 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 have the suspect just confess. And th this is obviously not the type of story we are talking about here. It is not like, yes, I knew you would be the, the, the murderer. And you go, oh, it's a fair cup. You got me, arrest me. Um, so it's, again, working out your hypothesis and then testing it and accumulating evidence that your hypothesis is, is correct. So this, this is where... In, in both in Sherlock Holmes stories and in, in science, where you leave the, the abduction bit, where you build your initial hypo hypothesis on the information you have, where you basically leave the creative process and go back to the scientific reasoning, how you prove that your model you developed is, in terms of science, the most correct model you can build at a given time in terms of the story, you can prove that the bloke is a killer or the gardener or the butler for once. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, no, I you convinced me. Um, I'm happy with that reasoning. Uh, <laughs> Daniel is <laughs> completely outraged. No, I, um, I think there's definitely um, very good value in that, right? In, in that, especially when writing a thesis, but also let's say, for most people, when they're writing their thesis, they've also not written a whole lot of papers. Um, and um, and it could actually be a very useful model, once again, for them to, to, to go about this, right? To think about this in that way, even if the actual writing then ends up being, you know, like, well, as science-y as, as it will get. Um, but um, there's a lot of elements that are common to to, to, to good writing, so to say, with the short sentences, a clear story, um, a clear red line, the thread that you can follow all along the process. And like you said, um, not getting caught up in, in numbers, but rather transmitting messages um, that, that you will be able to remember uh, or that the audience or the reader in this case will be able to remember. So I think there's a lot of value in that. We can, we can even make a tool out of that, right? Um, write your paper or your thesis as if it was a, a detective story. Yeah. Great, yeah. Um, so 
let's see what else um what what are other so just for me to recap one of the other things that you said that i think are 100 true is that when you throw people off um whether it is at the beginning of a talk or um a course um or whatever you you are presenting they're much more likely a to pay attention and b to go along with um whatever unusual stuff you might want them to try out to think differently to look in a different perspective so how can we train ourselves do that more you know like how can we uh, encourage that in our students in our um, lab mates in, in in ourselves how what what are some 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 things we could we could do or some things you do okay you told us that in, in the lecture you might start by presenting um rather a historic event than your glioblastoma introduction fair enough um how about how about other things we can do how can we encourage this kind of behavior so that we are all more open-minded it, uh, could, could you just start with easy questions <laughs> <laughs> No, no, you're here on the stage, Andrew. Oh. You're you're going to be exposed. This is now um, down to earth. Uh, go ahead. I mean, we, we have to be slightly careful because it's something Daniel said you, both of you already have discussed. You have to be careful not to completely lose the audience in the beginning. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this is mentioned that the gardener is the murder fairly early on in your talk. Um, so, so, so you, you, you must be careful not to confuse the hell out of the people for the first, I don't know, you know, if you do it for half an hour in a 45-minute lecture, nah, it ain't going to work. Um, so you, 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 must, you mustn't be too extreme in, in, in both directions. I mean, and the other thing is, um, and this is completely unfair, and we hope, I hope that not Daniel's students are not listening to this podcast, is... Um, we, we have this um, session where they, they have their practical work and then they give their presentation for a whole day. And no matter how good the presentations are, so this is not a quality assessment, but if you have a whole day of listening to the same structure of the talk, it becomes so incredibly difficult to follow. Yeah. And it becomes so unfair towards the end because you just go oh, fuck, yes yes 42 points daniel let's let's go for the pub um and it's, it's especially in, in in these type of sessions where you can encourage the students to come up with a non shall we call it a non-linear non-obvious approach and a couple of years ago, we did this um, with a problem-oriented learning session where, you know, you, you, the structure is open anyway. So we, we have different types at this university, how, how you produce a poll. Either you give the students a paper and go, this is a paper, do something with them. Or you give them a single sentence and go, look, this is a problem. Come back with it. And... Um, a couple of, of years ago when, you know, Game of Thrones was still something happening as opposed to it stopped after season seven. Honestly, there was no season eight. Um, we just gave the teams names. So 
we went, okay, House Lannister, your topic is cancer and plants. Um, House Stark, your topic is that and that. And just by doing this really, really simple thing, you got students to suddenly realize, okay, this doesn't have to be deadly serious. We can have some fun. And as soon as you have the idea, I can have some fun, you start with creativity. Mm, agree. And, and they came back with different, really interesting, different approaches to discussing this topic. Everything from they did a pop quiz to they, they had other really good things, which I just can't remember, so I'll just waffle on again. Um, hoping you will cut this bit out of your podcast. <laughs> and, and, and so they're, they're really simple tools. I think one of the major problems, and again, I think this is a particularly a German problem, very unfair, and particularly a problem with young students is that we tend to equate proper science with being incredibly serious. Mm, yeah, and that's—I don't think that's a good approach. Yeah, obviously, we are talking about a serious problem, and if you work in cancer, you know, cancer jokes are not really a good idea. But to use creativity to alleviate a stressful situation of giving a presentation makes your audience again more receptive. And when we did uh, in. There's a horrible example of how, how to not do this is um, in, in Scotland, we have a had a lecturer who was, I think he had his humor surgically removed. I'm not quite sure. Uh, and so he started his lecture. Well, I was told that a lecture should always start with a joke. Two atoms walking down the street. One atom says, I think I have lost an electron. The other atom says, are you sure? The other one says, yes, I am positive. And you go, no, 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 no. And, and then he's just started his lecture, which was not on, 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 on chemistry. Um, and this is, of course, how really not to do it. Yeah. But if you can sort of find a creative approach and, and, and encourage a creative approach in others by taking the stress away of making it all too grown up, um, I think that already helps. And, and in a way, obviously, Daniel and I do this whenever we meet online. And you have all this stressed students logging in. And we just waffle on. Obviously, we don't enjoy this. We don't enjoy having fun talking to each other. We just do this for the students. We do this so their stress is relieved. And they can, we, we would much more like to talk about philosophy or grading yes great, great, great topic we always go yes um so that, that that's one good approach um and I, I i totally love that i think that's that's perfect to go back to because children are inherently creative right it's it's when we get when we collect all of these uh experiences when we while growing up that in the end when we're grown-ups we know okay this is how the world is and that we lose our creativity by by not knowing how the world is and, and that's how children are and this takes me maybe that's now um at the end of this podcast a new avenue but i also just heard about the um people 
that you have to foster and encourage that are not similar to the to the others that stick to the rules, but rather to focus also or how you handle those people who are different and who are really creative in doing things totally differently. I, I just heard the term that they call them the canaries, right? Which uh, the miners took down into the mines to realize, oh, there's something wrong. And that you have to foster these people who are similar to these canaries who say, well, why are we doing it this way? And I just remember I had a, post, I had a PhD student very talented uh, from Sicily, and he was totally different to the German way. Uh, so administration, for example, hated this guy because he would, would never fill any forms, would never comply with any rules, would never go to any obligatory seminars or nothing. He actually didn't even, well, I shouldn't say that. Um, and, um, and, and he was not uh, following what I was suggesting, right? Because my suggestions were just built on whatever my experience was and would have been more of the same. And he said, well, nah, I think that's boring. As, and then he did something that was totally different. And I just let him go, which was partially because I felt like, let's see where this is going, but partially because I had no other choice. And um, he did something totally different. Okay, And that's one of the most spectacular creative papers that were produced was this person. And I think it's this fostering of specific people who say, well, why are we doing it this way? Why don't we do it this way? And then letting these people go and giving them space and not saying, well, you should do it this way because we've done it like this the rest the last 10 years. Well, then it's just going to be incremental research, right? And and I, I love this with the fun and creativity that you're saying. I think that's that's an excellent tool in taking this, you know, we're grown-ups out of the whole scientific process and just going like let's play and there's a citation i'm not sure who's it from who says well <laughs> i'm doing when i don't i'm doing science when i have no idea what i'm doing um and um the other one is to foster these people who who are the canaries right uh, so who don't go with the herd who are yellow who say you know why are we doing it like this i think that's also a way to foster creative science is to say well let's just go along with this guy and and let him try it out and, and this a, uh, this guy or woman sorry this hoax <laughs> um there, there's a quote from um c.s lewis obviously not a crime author that would be much better but um he uh, and i'm terrible with quotes but he basically went something along the lines when i was 12, I read fairy tales in, in secret. Now that I'm 40, I read them open out when I realized that the fear of appearing childish is a child's fear and I have to get over this. And I think that that's so important. And, and for us scientists, again, we have to remember we're not talking about the truth. So just because you do it your way and you believe your models, that doesn't mean you are 100% correct. And it takes, obviously, it takes a, a great... It, it takes a great ego to actually step away from your ego. Um, yeah. And, and we, we can get the link back to, um, to crime stories because I don't know if you remember um, House MD, you know, the TV show with Hugh Laurie, um, who was a diagnostic uh, um, doctor who had a team. Um, and it's basically, obviously it's, it's based on Sherlock Holmes. And they have lots of Sherlock Holmes reference in there. And Dr. House has Wilson as his sidekick instead of Watson. And he also lives at 21B. Um, and 
how the team was constructed, obviously this is also a TV show, we have to be careful here, um, how he has his team constructed, his, he fired people who worked with him too long and who started thinking like him. Because if you want new ideas, you have to be very careful that you don't create an echo chamber. It's if, if people work with you too long, and, and the, this is a sad story why you have to let go of your postdocs. If you've worked with people too long, you begin to th all think alike. You know what your supervisor wants, what your supervisor wants. Um, you know what the next steps would be, and you anticipate his way of thinking. And, and that's, again, that's good how to continue in your incremental research and getting a step ahead of the time. But if, if you want to have, okay, I've been doing this for 20 years. Honestly, I'm so over writing the same introduction, paper per paper per paper. I need to get a new perspective. That you can only create with new blood, with somebody who was trained by somebody else who is not basically, well, ideally not a copy of you, but who's not only experienced your way of thinking. So I think that's incredibly important in science because all this we are talking about, we have to remember science is always about a team. This goes back to the beginning of how storytelling creates a cooperation. That's obviously with externals, but it's the same with, within your team. Of course. Cool. So, yeah. we're, we're coming circle, no? Uh, at least that's my impression. Um, I love this... Um, Thing that you said for me that the, the the strongest take home is this truth thing i think that's that's fantastic we're not you know science is not about the truth it's about hypothesis i think that's fantastic for me at least yeah we haven't really introduced the word of the day that we had picked <laughs> which i think which i think probably is going to be a good wrap-up now which was uh, we chose critical curiosity um and and i think after our conversation today it's um it's hopefully quite clear why we picked it um and um and yeah i agree i think one of the take-home messages is that you don't have to worry so much about the truth about finding out the truth but more about taking off some of that pressure um putting it maybe in a less serious context and and letting letting yourself be creative so that you can actually come up with models that are at least useful and that you can build upon. And from a totally different context, I heard the sentence, which is very applicable here as well. Um, that's from Chris Foss. And he said, you know, a good, and that setting, it was negotiated. So I would take that to scientists. A good scientist um, can handle surprises. And Foss says, an excellent scientist is actually looking for the surprises. I like that very much. I think that's also basically a very good summary. Andrew, I love this session. Thank you so much. Um, that was that was fantastic. And I'm looking forward to our next examinations. Uh, is there any due? I'm not sure. Um, uh, I'm sure something will come up. It always does. Something will come up. And otherwise, I'm looking forward to a uh, 3D beer in, in, the in the not too far future. That was fantastic. I loved your connection with, uh, with uh, detective stories and with the criminal stories. And I'm looking forward to your book that's going to be published when? Uh, 20, like next month, right? Uh, oh, obviously, I just have to write another seven chapters and then I'm finished. <laughs> yeah, I loved it. Thank you, Andrew. It was a pleasure talking to you. Uh, I enjoyed myself very much and I uh, hope to see you again soon. Let's put it that way. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Andrew. Goodbye. Bye-bye.